Hey everyone, we're here to quickly interrupt your regularly scheduled Willing and Fable programming. The problem is, there is no regularly scheduled Willing and Fable programming. You don't actually know us yet because this is our very first story episode. Still, we wanted to jump on quickly and say, this episode was recorded over a month ago now. In fact, all of our first batch of episodes were. And therefore, they won't be joining up with real time for quite a while. Right now, in all 50 states, protesters have taken to the streets following the horrific deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, Tony McDade, and so many other Black Americans. These protests, which directly confront the police brutality and systemic violence against Black people, have been met by police forces wielding military-style weapons and tactics, a horrible irony that has not gone unnoticed. Neither of us speak for the Black Lives Matter movement, but we'd like to use our platform to amplify the cause. We've included links in our show notes for the episode to organizations we've donated to, including National Bailout, The Bail Project, The Okra Project, and the ACLU. And we encourage you to donate to these or other organizations if you're able to. In our show notes, you'll also find books we've picked up, podcasts we're listening to, and other sources we're currently learning from. Willing and Fable is a podcast where we endeavor to learn new stories and the reality surrounding them each week. We hope you'll join us in continuing to learn. Welcome to the Willing and Fable podcast. I'm Rowan Hall. And I'm Tracy Harrison. And today, we're going to be talking to you about pride. Before we jump into that, though, we wanted to take a little bit of time to explain why we are covering pride as part of the first episode of our series on the seven deadly sins. We knew we wanted to cover the seven deadly sins, but instead of trying to cram all seven into one episode, we thought it'd be fun to bring you a different sin every other week. As humans, we like to categorize things and put them into neat little boxes. That might be why the seven deadly sins have persisted as well as they have for so long. Every other week, we're going to be bringing you a new story or set of stories about that week's sin. And for anyone who doesn't know what we're talking about when we refer to these deadly sins, here's a quick rundown. You'll sometimes hear them referred to as the cardinal sins or the capital vices. And that's the thing. These seven characteristics, pride, wrath, gluttony, sloth, greed, envy, and lust, are a list of vices, habits or practices that are considered immoral, criminal, rude, or depraved within many Christian teachings. While this list has a place in such religious practices as Catholic confession, these characteristics are ones that have appeared in parables from around the world. While some people may be familiar with the seven deadly sins from their reference in the Canterbury Tales, you can read about stories with any of these very human faults in a library. Remember the very hungry caterpillar? That's a basic story about gluttony. 
Because these seven deadly sins have become a major idea, capital I, in the world of storytelling, we thought it would make a perfect grouping for our exploring these large ideas in our episodes. Before jumping into each story that we've brought to you today, I wanted to highlight a small story that I think is really interesting to talk about pride. Unfortunately, I couldn't find a specific source for this story, uh, as in the origin or the original author. I found it sort of copied and pasted on a ton of different sites. The first one, the one that I pulled from, being EnglishForStudents.com. And despite not being able to find a really thorough background on it, I still thought it was a really great, really short story to exemplify the idea of pride and how it can be your downfall. All right, Tracy, tell us your story. It's called A Moral Story, Pride Has a Fall. Gorla was a famous sculptor. His sculptures looked real. And they were incredibly lifelike. One day, he had a dream. And in that dream, he saw that after 15 days, the demon of death would come to take him. Gorilal prepared nine statues of himself, and on the 15th day, when he heard the demon of death coming, he took his place between the statues. The demon? He couldn't recognize Gorilal and was astonished to see ten Gorilals instead of one. He rushed back to the god of death and told death about the matter. The god of death got annoyed, and he set out to take Gorilal himself. Gorilal stood, alert, but motionless. And the god of death, he was initially perplexed. But then he thought for a moment, and he said, Gorilal, these sculptures would have been perfect. But there's one mistake. Gorilal was unable to suffer the least blemish in his work, so he came out and asked, Where is the fault? The god of death caught him, and he said, Here. The statues, you see, were faultless. But Gorilal himself was not. He was caught because of his pride and ruined by his own arrogance. Okay, I know that this is a story about pride causing him to be killed, but I think maybe as an artist I would have fallen into the same trap. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think even if you were desperately trying to hide from the god of death? Probably not. But if I were a character in a story... This would be how you go? Probably. (laughs) I just, I get it. There's so many characters in mythology, like Daedalus in Grecian mythology, who was the fantastic inventor. Mm -hmm. You know, they Mm -hmm. get so wrapped up in their own ability to create. And in stories of that ilk, when mortals can create so well, it is often their downfall. It is. And so I thought that was a really cool short story about pride that really encapsulated the idea of it being a moral tale. But I'm really curious about the story that you've prepared because, full disclosure to everyone, we did not share these stories with each other. So I'm hearing this for the first time, just like all of you are. Okay, Tracy, you know this myth. I know you know this myth because (laughs) we've discussed this myth. Okay. But I did a lot of research I compiled information for a couple of places, and I wrote my own version of it, specifically including some things that will uh, probably point anyone who's listening to how I feel about this story. <laughs> okay. And I'm really excited to discuss it with you, because I think that... Okay, I'm excited. I won't say anymore. I'm going to stop myself. Alrighty. Today, I'm going to tell everyone the myth of... Of Arachne and Athena. (gasps) I do know this one. Oh, I'm so excited. 
In the city of Colathon, in the region of Lydia, lived a young woman named Arachne. She was the beautiful daughter of Eidmon, a famous dyer of fabrics known for achieving the richest shades of purple. It was her father's craft that encouraged Athena to become a weaver. And so she did. Arachne was renowned far and wide for her incredible skill with the loom, so much so that people would gather around to watch her weave the incredible images of stories into her work. She achieved magnificent color, flawless imagery, and fabrics that were perfect down to the last stitch. And no one hesitated to tell her so. The throngs of gathered people fawned over the young woman, claiming that Arachne must have received such skill as a gift from the goddess Athena herself. But Arachne was not interested in such talk. As she told stories of her weaving to the crowds around her, she asserted, I am Arachne of Colathon, and I am more skilled with a loom than any mortal or god. This is not a gift from Mount Olympus. It comes from my hours and hours of practice and work. No one in the crowd believed her, but Arachne's words carried to the ears of the very goddess for whom she refused credit. Now the goddess Athena was known for a great many things, not the least among them. Wisdom, weaving, and warfare. The town of Athens was named for her, and she'd bested the great god Poseidon to win it. Athena created the monster Medusa and gave Perseus the bronze reflective shield that allowed him to slay that same snake-woven woman. She was a master of gods and men, sprung from the very head of Zeus himself, and she would not allow a pitiful mortal girl to play with a loom while making claims against her. And should Arachne so enjoy her hours of weaving, how dare she not offer thanks to the goddess of such handicraft? No, no, Athena would not have it. Taking the form of a wizened old woman, Athena came to Arachne in the throngs of people. Disguised Athena said, How dare you claim to be better than the gods? Where do you think such power comes from, girl? Does not Athena grant all women the gift of weaving? Arachne hardly stopped her nimble fingers as she said, My power comes from myself. I see no goddess here, and yet... I weave like the wind through the trees on a warm spring day. Enraged, Athena answered Arachne's challenge. She appeared in all her glory before the girl, her radiance causing the crowd to gasp. I am the goddess from whom your skill comes. You cannot weave with even half the skill I hold in this small finger. Then Athena produced a shining golden loom before her. We will see who is better skilled and put your foolishness to rest. Arachne did not reveal her fear as Athena sat down across from her and they began their work. 
the goddess called upon the earth to grant her shining fibers of every color and the sky to grant her nimbus-spun threads of gossamer. The very air moved aside to grant her threads the ability to slip from one moment to the next. The goddess depicted scenes of her triumph over Poseidon at Athens. She depicted shining gods on Mount Olympus and small, weak mortals down below. Her tapestry told the tales of gods in all their glory, shimmering in gold. Arachne's weaving held no such regard for the gods. She depicted... Athena's father, the great god Zeus, as a debaucher who transformed himself to ensnare mortal women. She wove him as a swan lying with Leda, as a rain of gold with Danae, and as a bull running off with Europa. Every corner of her tapestry was filled with images of the gods and their violent, ill-begotten meddlings. The nymphs, who were called to judge the contest, were silent in fear. How could they defame a goddess with the power to end their very lives just to say that a mortal woman's tapestry outshone Athena's by a thousand times? The very images of Arachne's weaving seemed to move with life. The beings seemed to writhe from one thread to the next in an expansive imagery. No one spoke. But Athena knew. She knew to her core that she'd been outwoven by the mortal Arachne who dared to depict the truth of the gods as if it were a lark. She stood and delivered, quivering with hatred, a curse upon her rival. You, girl will live the rest of your days your children will live the rest of their your children's children will spend their entire lives as the smallest most wretched creatures of this earth you will have nothing but your weaving she paused considering and plenty of arms to do it with the crowd ran in fear as young, beautiful Arachne sprouted more eyes in her head than was even conceivable to see with. She shrunk and shriveled and sprouted blackened, hairy arms as she was transformed into the world's first spider. Athena went back to her folly on Olympus. The mortal life of a woman, much less a spider, not extending past a wink of her own eternity. The mortals began calling these small, accursed monsters arachnids, spiders. And Arachne's children still weave silken webs to this day, spurning the goddess who dared to defy the power of a woman. Oh, that was such a good telling. I like that your telling coincides with the idea that the gods aren't perfect and they're the ones who are prideful and that we need to not only see them as these perfect beings, but as the shining examples of everything wonderful and terrible within humanity. I love this story for two reasons, specifically. The first being 
When people have incredible skill at something, whether it be artistic, Olympic athlete, master computer technicians, you know, anything in which someone can be masterfully skilled, people mm -hmm. tend to say, oh, you're so talented, as if that talent just sprang out of you when you were born. But it's the rule of 10,000 hours. You don't become a master at something until you work incredibly hard at it. Absolutely. I try, I try and do not always succeed to try to compliment people with that in mind on their work. But I wanted to depict an Arachne who was proud of what she herself had worked very hard to accomplish. Right. And I think that's what you exemplified beautifully in this version of it, where everything is a spectrum. <laughs> and it's okay to be proud of the work you've done, but that doesn't mean you're prideful. And you've shown both sides of that in this, where Arachne's proud of her hard work and the great things she's accomplished, and Athena is prideful. And that translates into this arrogance. And that's where the problem comes from. I think that ties into the second reason I love this. Thank you for that amazing <laughs> transition. So I think Athena is the ultimate example of the, quote, exceptional woman. And the exceptional woman is the idea that there is a woman who is allowed into the boys club. Mm -hmm. And that is a an unfortunate side of patriarchy. And you can see it in the gods of Mount Olympus, the fact that most of the female gods are not given traditionally masculinely co coded powers. For example, Athena has power over warfare. There are not as many other goddesses who have that sort of ability. And it is because she is allowed into the boys club that I think she is unable to accept other women excelling. Because to allow that would usurp her place. To be among the men, she has to behave in the same way that they do. I think that's a fascinating interpretation of it. That's not the cleanest example of the exceptional woman as an idea, but I see that in her when I read myths about Athena. I, I think that's not just something you see in myths about Athena, but you see it to, all the way through to today's culture. It hasn't gone away. There are some spaces in our society where the only way to succeed is to be perceived in a masculine way, even as a woman. It's not something that existed only in the ancient Greek patriarchal societies. It's something we still see today and we still have to fight through. So I love any story that can highlight the good and the bad of it. Right. There's I'm reading this exceptional book. It's called Lab Girl. It's autobiographical and I'm not going to quote it word for word, but there is a moment in the book where she talks for just the briefest second about sexism in the sciences. Mm -hmm. And the author says that she can sum up her experience with it through the way that people have constantly told her that she cannot be what she is. Yeah. Anyway, read the book, everyone. Everyone should read that book because it that book is written in just poetry and I am merely discussing it in ABCs, but it's stuck with me. So anyway, I love exploring Athena I think I spend probably the most time thinking about her. I wonder, why does she have to be a virginal god? You know, she curses Medusa for getting raped right. in the myth of Medusa. Right. And that's that's a story we can dive into in another episode because I think it's so fascinating, the 
changing perception of that story as time has gone on. Same with the Persephone myth, how that story has totally changed its perspective as we've, as a society, embraced women differently. That's true. If it's time, I'd like to tell you my main story. I want to tell you the story of Narcissus. Shut your mouth. (laughs) Okay, let's do it. I'm ready. Okay. Narcissus is the son of the river god Cephasus and the nymph Liriope. When he was young, she was told by Tircias, the blind seer, that he would have a long life provided he never recognized himself. It was imperative that he never see his own reflection. He was an exceptionally beautiful man, and many people fell in love with him. However, despite this, he only showed them contempt. He spurned all male and female lovers alike, and none of them were good enough for him to even entertain the idea of falling in love with. One day, while he was out hunting in the woods, an Oread nymph named Echo saw him. She immediately fell in love with him and followed him around the woods. Sensing her presence, Narcissus had her reveal herself by asking, Who's there? To which she replied, Who's there? Eventually, she walked out of the woods and came face to face with Narcissus. As she did so, Echo rushed forward to embrace him, and Narcissus cruelly pushed her away and told her not to disturb him any further. Distraught, Echo wandered about the woods, walking and walking until she wasted away, leaving only her voice behind. Nemesis, the goddess of retribution and revenge, learned of Narcissus's cruelty and vowed to punish him. She waited until he was thirsty and then cleverly led him to a pool of water where he glimpsed his own reflection. This was the end of Narcissus. He immediately fell in love with the man he saw before him. This man was true perfection, and Narcissus stared at him longingly and was utterly desperate to meet his love. This was the only creature on all of Earth that was beautiful enough and perfect enough to tempt him. When he learned the truth that the man he was so in love with was just an image of himself, he realized he could never actually meet and be with the man he saw. Distraught and truly heartbroken, Narcissus melted away from the burning passion inside of him, and eventually he turned into a gold and white flower. At least he does in this version that's told by Ovid in Book 3, of the Metamorphosis. An earlier version, written by Parthenius around 50 BC, has Narcissus so distraught and heartbroken that he commits suicide by the river. A contemporary of his, Conan, also shares this ending, but his version introduces Amenius, who fell in love with Narcissus and was similarly spurned. Amenius committed suicide at Narcissus's doorstep, after praying to the gods to teach him a lesson for the pain he provoked. In this version, Narcissus finds the water by himself, though the gods probably had something to do with that. He found his reflection one day while walking in the woods looking for something to drink. And as we all know, he fell in love with the image of himself. Lastly, a version written by Pausanias a century later has Narcissus fall in love with his twin sister. However, In all versions of this story, his body always turns into the Narcissus flower, which is a white and gold daffodil. So the next time you get a bouquet with daffodils in them, you can just think about Narcissus. (laughs) 
This story is where we get the term narcissism from. The term's believed to have come from Freud's 1914 paper titled On Narcissism, an Introduction. However, the term narcissism, or narcissist-like, was actually used as early as 1898 by a sexologist to describe excessive sexual interest in oneself. It wasn't until 1911 that the term lost its sexual nature, and Otto Rank published the first psychoanalytical paper specifically concerned with narcissism, linking it to vanity and self-admiration. In modern terms, the word narcissism is typically associated with Narcissistic Personality Disorder, or NPD. NPD is a cluster B personality disorder. These disorders are characterized by dramatic, overly emotional or unpredictable thinking or behavior and interactions with others, as listed in the DSM-5. NPD is characterized by a long-term pattern of exaggerated feelings of self-importance and excessive need for admiration and the lack of empathy towards other people. At the very least, the word narcissism conjures up the idea of an extremely grand sense of self, if not specifically the disorder. Lastly, the name narcissist, or at least some version of it, is a shorthand way for writers to indicate to an audience that a character may be enamored with themselves. Some examples include, but are not limited to, in the TV series Boardwalk Empire, Dr. Narcisse is introduced as condescending and intellectual. Narcissa Malfoy in Harry Potter is described to be incredibly vain and arrogant. And William Faulkner's character Narcissa in Sanctuary was also named after Narcissus. Before I jump into all of my deep and complex thoughts on Narcissus, I want to get your thoughts on that story. So I was already familiar with the myth of Narcissus. I hadn't read it in a while, and I don't know why in my head I had somehow transformed him into not being a jerk before he was enamored with himself. Right? I had the same thought. I In my head, this story was... He wasn't a jerk. He saw himself. He knew it was an image of himself, and he wasted away loving that image of himself. And then the reality is totally different, and I have so many thoughts about that. I need to go a-hunting for whichever version of this myth I read, because... I don't think there's a specific version you might have read, or maybe there is. I think that our society has really simplified this story, because it we needed it to be a shorthand for pride and a shorthand for loving oneself. And we took away the complexities of what the story really is. I had also thought that I remembered, and again, I clearly don't have the most accurate memory of this myth, that Echo was cursed to speak to him only in Echoes. And that's where we got the name Echo. She was able to speak to him, and then one of the gods said, nah, nope. I didn't find that in the versions I was looking up, but I was looking up really specifically Narcissus's storyline through it. And in all of those, Echo was sort of just a, a footnote. Right. I could be making this all up for all I know. I'm just I doubt you so are. Shocked. I, I highly doubt you are. I've heard that too. But I, I loved getting to research this because this is such an old story, and it's such a classic one because it's, it's deeply human. Pride and right. arrogance are so fundamental to who we are as people, just like fear and insecurity are. In this story, it is really satisfying to see that the person who is prideful is getting punished for it because so often in reality, pride is something that is weaponized against others. So this story is the foundational story of pride. If you think about pride, you think about narcissists and narcissism. I actually specifically stayed away from this story thinking it's what you were going to do. <laughs> <laughs> what can I say? I'm predictable. Well, no, no. I know you love psychology. Mm -hmm, and I do. And you're the person who always 
is my encyclopedia of psychological terms and you are the person who taught me about NPD. So I specifically thought, oh God, no, Tracy's going to do this. I can't even touch that. (laughs) And I'm glad that you did because I don't think I would have gone into all those details. I, having researched this as deeply as I have, I actually have kind of flipped my perspective on this story. And I could make an argument that it's not even a story that's truly about pride. Oh, thank God. Okay. (laughs) I didn't want to say it because in my last story, I was the one who was protecting the person who was supposed to be prideful because I didn't think it was about Arachne and I didn't want to say it. So yes, go, Tracy. Okay. Here are my my thoughts. So being able to label someone as proud or arrogant is a really easy way for us to explain away their bad behavior or label them as a terrible person. But as we know, people are way more complex than that. So in this quote-unquote foundational story about pride, the main character is undone by his own self-love and his pride, or at the very least, his love for himself is what ultimately leads to his own destruction. But even then, we still leave the story, or at least I do, kind of sympathizing with Narcissus a little. I profoundly sympathize with him specifically because his mother heard that he would be undone by his seeing of himself and then kept him from seeing himself. If I went for, I don't know, let's say he's 30 for the sake of argument. If I went for 30 years not knowing what I looked like, having everyone fawn over me because I'm a hot man in a Greek myth, (laughs) and then I finally got to see what I looked like, first of all, you wouldn't have to magically charm me to stare at the lake. I'd be pretty interested. (laughs) But on top of that, he does get magically charmed to stare at the lake so what's the poor guy to do he doesn't get magically charmed to stare at the lake he gets magically tricked into looking at himself ah so he could leave at any time right so here are my thoughts on him he was a man with high standards yes he could be cruel and vain but even he was looking for love. He wanted someone to love him and he wanted to love someone in return. And it was that he couldn't love someone back that led to his destruction. I love this story of pride because I think it is, you know, I've said it multiple times now, the story of arrogance. And it's so much more complex than just a simple story about pride. Do you think that he was seeking love when he turned those people away? Or was he creating such high standards as a means of isolating himself. I love that interpretation. And I think you can interpret it however you want. I I looked at it as he's a person who has been desired his whole life. And he was never able to be satisfied until he finally found what he didn't even know he was looking for. Well, he was looking for himself, right? This is a myth about someone getting constant affection from others and isolating himself more and more and more and then finding himself in the end and being punished for it. Yes. And I think the most interesting part of the story to me comes down to he he found this perfect being. He didn't know it was himself. It took him a long time to realize that the, the person he had fallen in love with was just a reflection of himself. Does he ever realize it? That's what kills him. The realization that he can't ever be with the person he just fell in love with because it's only a reflection of himself is why he wastes away, staying by that person's side, even though it's not real. In this tangled mythology of narcissists, a lot of people are wasting away. I don't mention that to be funny. 
I'm I'm really interested in it. I because keep in mind, I have a lot of versions of this myth in my head. So mm-hmm. forgive me if I'm tangling them. But we have Echo who wastes away. And in Greek mythology, it is often primarily the job of nymphs to fall in love or be taken by men and then waste away. But Echo wastes away. Narcissus wastes away. The poor, lovely woman who dies on his doorstep? A man. Amenius. It was a man? Yeah. Did I forget to mention that? No, you didn't say it. (laughs) Okay, we need to talk about this. Narcissus had a potential male lover. Yeah, he was loved by men and women alike. And and think about the end of the story. The person he falls in love with is a man. Can we briefly just touch on the fact that throughout my public school education, myths and stories from the ancients were only allowed to be heterosexual and how much more interesting it is that he had a mystical being of a nymph, a nymph of the mountains loving him as well as a mortal man. Yeah. And that his downfall was his love for another man. Tracy, this gets better and better. I I love this story because, again, I think you can make the argument it's a story about what it means to want something so badly it destroys you. It's kind of more a story of greed, really, because Echo wants him so badly and she can't have him that it, it wastes her away. He wants the man in the reflection so badly and he can't have it and he wastes away. The pride comes in, in my opinion, in two places. One, you know, realizing that he himself is perfection. But two, I think the difference between Narcissus and other protagonists is that his pride wouldn't allow him to move on or even try to keep living. He was too good to try again, too important in his own mind to heal. And instead, he wasted away because nothing and no one would ever be good enough for him again. Which is really opposite to the myth of Arachne, in my mind, because Arachne, even as a spider, part of the myth is that she and her children and her children's children always continue to weave to spite Athena because Athena cannot take away that skill. It's two great versions of of pride. And and I'm really glad we got the chance to talk about Narcissus because, again, it is that stereotype story of pride. And when you really break it down, I think we've just really simplified it in a way that doesn't do the story justice. And on the other side, I think we've ignored the story of Arachne and just gone, What a cool way to talk about how we found spiders and not thought about the complexity and the interesting dynamics of the two women in the story, both proud in different ways, one that is constructive and one that is destructive. I I really love what you said about the idea being pride, keeping people from having the courage to try again. And I think that when you put it that way, it's very clear that the two myths, both coming from the Greek pantheon, are two sides of the same coin. That's what I see with Narcissus at the end of the story. He could have worked to heal and to grow, and instead he dramatically wasted away because he couldn't face the fact that he had to change. Right, and that's very poetic, the idea of wasting away in the framing of this myth. And I often imagine him as a man who's, you know, he's so beautiful, he's so taken by himself, and he chooses to waste away based on the idea that people will tell the story of him forever and ever, and that the story of him is worth more than the living and failing and trying again. I want to circle back to your first myth, now that we're on the the subject of comparing myths. Mm -hmm. 
Tell me how to say this gentleman's name again. Goriel? Goriel? Gorilal. So, we have Gorilal hiding amongst these sculptures. Death is breathing down his neck, looking from one face to the next, trying to find the mortal man to kill. And he says, these sculptures would be perfect, but for one mistake. What if, instead of Gorilal being tricked, he chose to come out of hiding at that moment because death is preferable to him if he can figure out how to make his work better. I think that'd be a really cool retelling of this story. <laughs> Listen! <laughs> the, the idea of dying at your peak and then attaining, obtaining that immortality through your work. Well, he's a mythological character, so we can take him a little bit out of the context of always choose life. Mm -hmm. But I'm just, now that we're sort of reframing myths and interpreting them and going all out, I like the idea of an artist who, yes, has some of that classic pride we associate with the greats, but also... I mean, that's because you and I both love anything that takes a classic and twists it on, it, twists it on its head. Listen, if that's not what you signed up for when you clicked on this podcast, I am so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening, though. We really appreciate having you here. And with all of that, we've officially discussed our first of the seven deadly sins. I'm so excited we started with Pride. I am too. I think it's a really fun one to get to dive into. This is a juicy, juicy story. Stories. A juicy, juicy chat, Tracy, is what I mean to say. Yes, Rowan. It was a juicy, juicy chat. <laughs> hey, Tracy. Hey, Rowan. It's time for something good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This is something that Tracy and I do. We simply call it Tell Me Something Good. It all started because at the time that the Amazon Echo was coming out to the world, I had recently gone through a breakup and my father sent me an Echo as a way to keep me company <laughs> because I was all alone and that's ironic and sad, but I started doing something when I was feeling bummed that I still do to this day and I just say, Alexa, tell me something good and she spits out the most ridiculous facts. It's so satisfying. And I I started carrying that into my conversation. So Tracy, tell me something good. So today something arrived in the mail at my house and it was a Nintendo Switch that my sisters and I all collectively bought for my mom. <gasps> yeah, so she's been bored during quarantine and really, really loves Pokemon Go for years. Are you serious? I think she's the only person who plays Pokemon Go. Loves it. Absolutely loves it. And so when my sister and I got into playing Animal Crossing, she got really interested in it. And so all my sisters and I bought her a Nintendo Switch and Animal Crossing. And I'm going to go over to her house tomorrow and surprise her with it and teach her how to play. Tyler still plays Pokemon Go with his young nieces, so clearly we have to make them friends on Pokemon Go. Is that the way it works? Yes, she would love that. <laughs> so Rowan, tell me something good. My something good today is very simple. I was walking in my neighborhood a few days ago. And it's where I live is kind of city if you go one way and a little bit residential if you go the other way. And one of the small houses in my neighborhood has a lemon tree that reaches over the sidewalk. And our neighbor had put out a sign that said, you're welcome to have a lemon. 
And we brought some lemons home to my apartment and have put them in tea and water. And it's so satisfying every time. That's so lovely. Isn't that charming? Being out in California and just seeing the endless lemon trees everywhere was the coolest experience. One of my one true dreams, something that I visualize all of the time as if it will come to me somehow, is to have a house where I can have a room that is my office and my office alone, and outside my office window is a lemon tree. Oh, that would be lovely. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you all so much for joining us for the first episode of Willing and Fable. My name is Rowan Hall. I am your Los Angeles-based filmmaker. I love dark stories. I always hunt for the story where the hero has to do something unforgivable to help others, or the dark and haunting characters turn out to be the ones that save the day. So if we ever work any ghost stories in here, know that it is because I fought for it. (laughs) It's true. I I do enjoy a a good ghost story every once in a while, but um, I am Tracy Harrison. I am your Pennsylvania-based software developer and story lover. I love stories with morally complex characters. I love when you can't tell if they're a hero, a villain, an anti-hero, what's going on? Are they brooding and dark, but they're really nice to children? What's that all about? Oh, so interesting. So I'm really excited about stories that are really deeply morally complex and don't have a right or wrong answer. And the more twisted you can make it while still staying on the right side of the moral event horizon, the more I'm into it. Careful, this might become a purely anti-hero focused podcast. (laughs) We promise not to do only anti-heroes. We'll give you some genuine heroes and some genuine villains as well. (laughs) So everyone, thanks for listening. And remember, have a story-worthy week. Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ash, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes, or find us at Willing and Fable on Twitter or Instagram to join the discussion. Remember, stories grow in the telling. So if you like what we're doing, tell a friend, tell a foe, and we'll see you soon, okay? <laughs>